Pushkin. I've interviewed many successful people over the years, and one thing I find fascinating is many of them don't consider themselves business savvy. Take the owners of Tight Knit Brewing. They turn to Chase for Business for everything from banking and payment acceptance to credit cards and do all of it in one place with the Chase mobile app. And that's helped these brew-loving friends turn a passion into a business. Learn more at chaseforbusiness.com. Make more of what's yours. Chase mobile app is available for select mobile devices. Message and data rates may apply. J.P. Morgan Chase Bank, N.A., member FDIC. The most innovative companies are going further with T-Mobile for Business. The PGA of America is helping lower scores and elevate fan experiences with AI coaching tools and 5G-connected cameras. AAA is getting more drivers back on the road fast with location telematics. And the Las Vegas Grand Prix is powering race day operations with 5G connectivity, giving fans an experience at the speed they deserve. This is accelerating innovation with T-Mobile for Business. Take your business further at tmobile.com slash now. Experts claim there is nothing tougher than a diamond. But at Diamonds Direct, we beg to differ. Have you ever met a mother? Strong, radiant, timeless. This Mother's Day, give her the gift that meets her match. With diamond jewelry starting at $200, plus Diamonds Direct's exceptional quality and unbeatable everyday price, you're sure to give her a gift that wows this generation and the next to come. Experience the thrill of jewelry shopping done right at Diamonds Direct. Diamonds Direct. Your love, our passion. Just a heads up, we talk about suicide in this episode. Please take care while listening. In Zimbabwe, let alone the whole of Africa, you're looking at a ratio of one psychiatrist to about one and a half million people. That's Dr. Dixon Chibanda, a psychiatrist in Zimbabwe. He knew people in his country desperately needed access to mental health care, but weren't getting it. And even though Dixon felt daunted by the magnitude of the problem, he was determined to try and find a solution. My initial thoughts were to work with trained nurses and doctors at the hospital, but I was immediately told, no, the nurses and the doctors are extremely busy. They have to deal with people who are living with HIV. They have to deal with people who are coming in with malaria and all sorts of other things. They just don't have the time to do this mental health stuff. Since health professionals were fully tied up with other work, Dixon was forced to look elsewhere. And so in 2005, he turned to a rather unorthodox group for help. On today's episode, how you can vastly improve access to mental health care when you put grandmothers on the case. I'm Maya Shunker, and this is A Slight Change of Plans, a show about who we are and who we become in the face of a big change. Dixon and I started our conversation by talking about what drew him to the field of psychiatry. He had initially wanted to become a pediatrician, but then something happened in medical school that deeply affected him. A classmate of his, who outwardly seemed stable and cheerful, took his own life. This came as a total shock to Dixon, and it motivated him to reassess how he wanted to spend his time as a doctor. 
And then there were a couple of other things, you know, I, I, I grew up in a family where my parents, they didn't really have a, a wonderful marriage, you know, if I could put it that way. And when my parents divorced, that really affected me psychologically, emotionally. I think I must have had childhood depression for a very long time and no one really knew and I didn't know either. You know, so so the, all of these kind of things and then going to high school and being bullied and then, you know, feeling completely out of place. So quite a number of events which had a an emotional or traumatic effect on me, I believe contributed to that final decision for me to get into mental health and psychiatry. The thinking was, you know, if I can understand more about mental health and mental illness, I'll be able to heal myself, you know. Um, and and, and that's, that's actually what it's all about, you know. It's really about finding a way of making myself a better person. So you end up deciding to become a psychiatrist and you end up having a patient named Erica whose experience inspires you to specifically work in the area of increasing access to mental health care. Do you mind sharing her story? Yeah, Erica Erica was a 26-year-old patient of mine who I had been seeing for a good close to three years she was initially brought to the hospital where I worked as a psychiatrist with a history of major depression and I spent quite a lot of time with Erica and I really got to know her and I think that's one of the things with psychiatry when you really connect with your clients you you get to know them on a on a very personal level and you know everything about their lives because i mean that's what mental health is all about you know you talk to people you listen to people's stories and and so you know over the years erica and i had built this very strong rapport but erica actually lived some 300 kilometers from where i am and um she would come and see me once every month together with her mum, you know, for review. Uh, and she, she'd made a lot of progress over the years. And, you know, one evening, I get a call in the middle of the night from the hospital where I worked. And the ER doctor, you know, informs me that Erica, you know, my, my patient Erica has uh, taken an overdose, but she will be fine. But, you know, they kind of think that after that she should really come over and probably get um, more psychiatric uh, evaluation and attention. And, you know, we agreed that that was what was going to happen, you know, as soon as she's released. But, you know, uh, Erica didn't come when she was released from the ER. They went back to, to the village where she lived with her mother and father. And I only got a call three weeks later from Erica's mother to tell me that Erica had I'd hang herself. You know, when Erica's mother phoned me to tell me what had happened, my, you know, my sort of instinctive knee-jerk response was to say to Erica's mother, why didn't you bring Erica to the hospital for the review that we had talked about, you know, after, after she had taken that initial 
overdose. And it was her response, really, that that struck me, you know, because she said, you know, we wanted to come, but we couldn't because we, we, we didn't have a bus fare to, to come to your hospital. And that was like $10. And as a result, Erica couldn't really get the help that she needed. Hmm. Yeah, and from what I understand, I mean... The, the fact Erica even had access to you already put her in, in a minority of people, right? Just given the, the, the sheer number of psychiatrists in the area. Yeah, the ratio is, uh, is, is actually quite appalling when you think about the statistics in terms of psychiatrists in Zimbabwe, let alone the whole of Africa. You're looking at a ratio of one psychiatrist to about one and a half million people. And I think, you know, that that whole story about Erica got me really thinking about my role as a psychiatrist. You know, when you're trained as a psychiatrist, you you kind of see yourself working in a hospital. I mean, that's what psychiatrists do, you know. They work in hospitals. You know, we, we work in clinics. We, we deal with people. People come to us. And I started asking myself if this was really the right way of looking at my role as a psychiatrist in, in Africa, expecting people to come to me. And, you know, I just realized that that just wasn't going to work. Erica's inability to access help when it mattered most had a profound impact on Dixon. He felt inspired to bridge this gap in access to mental health care, but wasn't sure how to do it. Then, a moment of insight. Dixon was in West Africa at an academic conference being run by the World Health Organization when he caught wind of a local ceremony nearby. It was a spiritual gathering where a number of people had come together to try and heal those in the community who were suffering. And Dixon immediately took note of one particular aspect of this ceremony, the prominent role elderly women played in leading it. They were really powerful, but above all, they had this amazingly profound way of conveying empathy and connecting with their subjects, that was really what struck me. And that was when I kind of realized that there was something in having an older woman who has wisdom and experience, you know, reaching out to help a young mother who is struggling with postnatal depression, you know, a young mother who is struggling with anxiety disorder, and just reaching out and establishing that connection that makes that person feel comfortable to share their story, to make them feel that sense of belonging, that I am in a place where I'm being taken care of. That was really powerful. Dixon drew a lot of inspiration from observing the elderly women in that ceremony. The influence they had in the community because of their age, their wisdom, and their empathetic nature gave him an idea. Since there weren't enough mental health professionals in Zimbabwe to meet the needs of his community, Dixon thought one way to help could be to bring elderly women or grandmothers into the fold. If they could lend a compassionate ear to people who were struggling, that could give more people the support they needed. But when Dixon told his friends in the medical community about his idea, they did not share his enthusiasm. Well, the initial reaction was obviously negative. Everyone thought it just wouldn't work because therapy is designed to be delivered by trained 
therapists such as psychiatrists or clinical psychologists and grandmothers with minimal education just did not have the capacity to do this kind of work. Um, so friends in the field, colleagues and other senior colleagues as well, who I looked up to all kind of thought this wouldn't work. You know, but I guess at the back of my mind, I always had that vision of these elderly women and also just looking at my own childhood as well. You know, I grew up in a family where the women were very strong, very powerful. Both my grandmothers, you know, were literate, were educated and had a very strong contribution to the family and making decisions. So I, I guess that's another part of my, my history or my childhood that has influenced this work. Dixon did not have to wait long to test out his theory. Zimbabwe was reeling from a recent government crackdown, which traumatized millions and left hundreds of thousands of people homeless. Against this backdrop, Dixon's medical supervisor implored him to double down on his existing efforts and try to find a solution to the growing mental health crisis. And at the time, I was the only psychiatrist actually working within the public health sector, you know. So my supervisor said, you need to go out there and you need to come up with something, you know, um, but there's no money. You know, you have to try and think of some innovative way of addressing the psychological trauma that this community is going through. And my initial thoughts were, you know, to, to work with, um, with the trained uh, uh, nurses and doctors at the hospital. But I was immediately told, no, the nurses and the doctors are extremely busy. They have to deal with people who are living with HIV. They have to deal with people who are coming in with malaria and all sort of other things. They just don't have the time to do this mental health stuff. But you could consider working with other, you know, non-professionals, you know. And I thought, my goodness, this can't be done by non-professionals. But just the thought then, you know, there are lots of community grandmothers here who have been involved in, in sort of outreach programs. How about I start with just 14 grandmothers from this community and, and see what we can do? A part of me was, was also quite skeptical, but... You know, when you think you're onto something, you kind of keep going, you know. Yeah. I mean, I can also imagine therapists and doctors reacting negatively because they're thinking, um, I have a real degree in this. You know, I'm actually trained. And now you're telling me that grandmas can do my job for me. Like, did you hear any of that kind of response? Yes, I, I heard a lot of that kind of response. But you see, that's where I think you know, the problem we have with today's education where we see everything through the lens of academia and academics, you know, particularly from the Northern Hemisphere. And we, we don't take time to look at the local indigenous knowledge and the wisdom that is inherent in every culture. I mean, one of the things that I really learned from the grandmothers is that every culture has the amazing ability to teach you a piece of profound wisdom. And this, this is something that I, I have really taken to heart 
from my interactions with the grandmothers, just appreciating more the local culture and the role that it can play in addressing not only mental health issues, but a wide range of issues that people are struggling with in communities or in society. We'll be right back with a slight change of plans. Should you send that email you wrote while you were mad? Probably not. Probiotics can't help with all of your gut decisions, but if your gut needs a little support, Ritual has your back. Food choices, stress, or travel can throw off your gut health. That's where Ritual comes in. They made a three-in-one supplement called Symbiotic Plus with clinically studied prebiotics, probiotics, and a postbiotic to support a balanced gut microbiome. I make sure to take my Symbiotic Plus every morning, and I always appreciate that it's in a single minty capsule. Ritual prioritizes sustainably sourced ingredients and lower carbon packaging for its products, which is another reason I feel good about taking Symbiotic Plus. There's no more shame in your gut game. Symbiotic Plus and Ritual are here to celebrate, not hide your insides. Get 25% off your first month for a limited time at ritual.com slight. Start Ritual or add Symbiotic Plus to your subscription today. That's ritual.com slash slight for 25% off. You can find inspiring stories almost anywhere. For instance, check out the co-founders of Girls Who Do Interiors. This Miami-based design company was started by three friends when they were still in school. And right from the start, they turned to Chase for Business for everything from banking and payment acceptance to credit cards. And they handled them all in one place with the Chase mobile app. It's so important to have that kind of help when you're just starting out. Learn more at chaseforbusiness.com. Make more of what's yours. Chase mobile app is available for select mobile devices. Message and data rates may apply. J.P. Morgan Chase Bank, N.A. member FDIC. The most innovative companies are going further with T-Mobile for Business. The PGA of America is helping lower scores and elevate fan experiences with AI coaching tools and 5G-connected cameras. AAA is getting more drivers back on the road fast with location telematics. And the Las Vegas Grand Prix is powering race day operations with 5G connectivity, giving fans an experience at the speed they deserve. This is Accelerating Innovation with T-Mobile for Business. Take your business further at T-Mobile.com slash now. Dr. Dixon Chibanda, a psychiatrist in Zimbabwe, had an idea for how to help more people in his country access mental health services and it would come to be known as the Friendship Bench. Here's how it would work. Members of the community with mental health needs would be paired with a local grandmother. They'd then plan to meet up at a bench outdoors and work through problems the person was facing. Dixon took his idea to some grandmothers in his community in order to get their feedback. I was given 14 grandmothers who were not very excited about working with me initially, (laughs) Can you tell me more about that? Well, you know, when I approached them, I had my psychiatrist hat. And over time, over the years, I've realized that when you really want to engage with communities, you need to take off your professional hat. If you really want 
to heal people who are traumatized in this part of the world. You need to rely on the local language, the local idioms of distress, and just use the language that resonates with communities. Because when you use their own language, you instantly remove stigma. Because stigma is one of the biggest problems that we face in mental health. And in this part of the world, Stigma is brought about because we're trying to adopt terms that are used in the Western world. You know, if you talk about depression in my country, people think you've lost it yourself. People don't believe there's depression. People think that um, depression is something that just doesn't happen to people in this part of the world. But if you use the terms which which resonates with the local folks, like in our culture, for instance, the equivalent for depression is a word called kufungisisa, which literally means thinking too much. When you break down the symptoms of thinking too much in the local language, it's exactly the same as depression. Um, so, you know, I, I learned from the grandmothers that the words that we use and the terms that we use to describe people's emotional experiences can make or break people. Fascinating. Um, so, so you said the grandmothers were not excited initially about the prospect of working with you, but you learned to adopt the language of the locals, right? Um, and to make sure that you were, you were speaking in their terms. Was that effective in getting them onto your side? and motivating those 14 initial grandmothers to, to want to partner with you? I remember Grandmother Jack, the very first grandmother who I interacted with and spoke to about the friendship bench and the, the idea that I had. She was very apprehensive initially and uh, dismissive uh, when I first approached her because I was, I was using lingo from the DSM-5, you know, the Diagnostic Statistical Manual, which is kind of the, the psychiatrist handbook or Bible, you know. And I was using terms from that book and she's looking at me like, and you think that kind of stuff is going to fly in this community, you know? <laughs> <laughs> totally interesting. You know, and um, I remember distinctly, you know, she said, if you really want to make a difference in this community, you have to put down your book and don't come here acting like a doctor. She knows the community inside out. And I persisted, you know, every week, you know, I'd go to the, to the clinic, you know, meet the grandmothers and, you know, Grandmother Jack would be looking at me, you know, very skeptical and, 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 and gradually, you know, she warmed up to me, you know, and gradually, you know, they bought into the whole idea of therapy on a bench. Mm. Yeah, you know, you said that the grandmothers eventually warmed up to you, but it seems like a key feature of that is the fact that you maintained an open mind throughout, right? You were... You were viewing this as a dialogue between you and grandmothers, right? A, a two-way street in which both sides were contributing to the conversation. And I think that's, so, that's such an important lesson uh, for people who are trying to bring new and innovative approaches to their communities. You know, an example of this is that initially you had planned to call the bench the mental health bench, 
right? Yeah. <laughs> um, and no one was coming when it was called the mental health bench. And then the grandmas, you know, came to you. I imagine Grandma Jack was among them and said, look, Dixon, you need to change the name to Friendship Bench. No one is going to come to the mental health bench. Yeah. Yeah. And that's a good example of me having my psychiatrist's hat on, you know, like, <laughs> hey, this is, we're, we're providing yeah. mental health services here. So this is the mental health bench. And it just didn't occur to me that a name could make or break uh, a program. But I've learned now, you know, the language is very important. The language that you use to navigate through the therapy, through the session, that's critical because that's what people identify with. So, yeah, indeed, <laughs> everything is in a name, I guess. <laughs> um, I'd love to dive a bit deeper into the features of Friendship Bench. And there's this very strong storytelling component involved. Um, but what struck me about the program is that both sides are encouraged to share their stories. And I find this fascinating because in the clinical world, um, providers are often discouraged from sharing personal stories, right? Yeah. Um, but, <laughs> but you've identified that there are huge therapeutic benefits to having people bond in this way. So can you share, share a bit more about that? Sure. Uh, I think before I share, one of the things I'd like to also just mention that through my interaction with the grandmothers over the years, my own approach as a psychiatrist has changed significantly. I am more comfortable sharing my own story with, uh, with clients who come to me, you know, for help. Uh, and I find that extremely powerful because you really connect at a human level. Um, you know, when we're trained as psychiatrists, we're trained to, to keep this distance. Don't really open up. Don't show your vulnerabilities because as a therapist, you're supposed to be strong. But actually, there's a lot more strength in showing your vulnerabilities. There's a lot more strength that comes from telling your own story, including the negative things, because then you really connect. Because one of the things I've learned from Friendship Bench is the therapy actually starts when you connect with a person. The different steps that you take in the process of reaching out to people are important. But if you do not have that connection, that rapport, um, you may lose everything else. So if you ask me what I consider to be the most critical feature of the work we do, it's that connection, being able to get two people to connect in a way that is empathic. And that's the first part, you know, which the grandmothers call kufurapfungwa or opening up the mind. Because without opening up the mind, you don't get to the root of the problem. The other key component that we emphasize is the grandmother's ability to summarize. So if you're listening to a story, you know, this is what I normally would say to the grandmothers. If, if you're listening to a story, how does the person that is telling the story know that you really were listening? And the simplest way is a summary you know, a good summary of what you've heard shows how well you were immersed in the story. And you can see from the grandmothers who are brilliant at summarizing, they are also the best grandmothers when it comes to immersing themselves into a story and also showing that empathy and that ability to make people feel respected and, um, and understood. You know, so, so those are the two key components. 
Another component of the Friendship Bench is a diagnostic screening tool. The grandmothers have everyone who comes to the bench fill out a questionnaire so they can get a better sense of what kinds of symptoms the person is experiencing and their degree of severity. If someone presents with severe symptoms, the grandmother refers them right away to a trained medical professional. But if someone presents with more mild to moderate symptoms, the friendship bench is for them. Grandmothers are trained in a form of cognitive behavioral therapy called problem-solving therapy, which focuses on identifying concrete problems, like unemployment, rather than the symptoms of that problem, like anxiety. Grandmothers then work with the person to brainstorm specific steps they can take to solve the problem. And according to research, this focus on resolving specific problems can give people a greater sense of agency over their lives. A classical sort of presentation on the bench is, you know, um, a, a young uh, client presenting with numerous problems. I'm HIV positive. I'm unemployed. I'm in an abusive relationship. I have a child who is not able to go to school because I don't have money to pay for school fees. I'm struggling to feed my family. So they present with numerous problems. You know, and, and one of the things that has really characterized the, uh, the therapy component is, is the ability to help these clients who come to the bench after sharing these stories, the ability of the grandmothers to help them select one problem to focus on. And that seems, that sounds very simple, but actually when you're immersed in all these problems, every single one of those problems is a big problem for you. So because the grandmothers live in these communities, the actual treatment is often not only on the bench, but it also occurs in the community. So you can get a grandmother meeting a client, for instance, at church. Um, so I'll see you this Sunday at church and you and I can pray together. Um, I will see you at the market and we can do this together. So you're slowly introducing a very practical kind of behavior activation to help someone who is depressed and uh, unmotivated and isolating themselves at home because they feel they are in this miserable situation. But because the grandmother has come up with these set of activities that they then carry out together, you slowly begin to see this person transforming. You know, so that's one sort of example of how the grandmothers would deal with situations of depression. Often people think the work we do is just on the bench. Uh, the bench, the friendship bench, or the bench, the physical bench, is just an entry point. There's a lot more that happens outside of the bench. We encourage everyone who's sat on the bench with a grandmother is to join a support group in the community. And through the support groups, they, you get peer, peer support with individuals who've all gone through the, the friendship bench, share their own experiences and collectively problem solve around challenges that they are facing within the community. I'd love if you could talk about the efficacy of the program because you actually ran a randomized control trial, which is considered the gold standard of evaluation and found some extremely exciting results. Yeah, um, so we have 
We have over 50 peer-reviewed publications, you know, scientific publications about the friendship bench. But I guess the most seminal publication would be our cluster randomized controlled trial, which is published in the Journal of the American Medical Association, which in a nutshell shows that six months after receiving therapy from a trained community grandmother on a bench in Zimbabwe, uh, people were still symptom-free. The grandmothers were in uh, essentially much better than, than enhanced usual care. And enhanced usual care was a trained uh, mental health nurse, clinical psychologist or psychiatrist. You know, and I think the reason why the grandmothers tend to be better is because they are rooted in their communities. The grandmothers are the custodians of local culture and wisdom, you know. Mm. And it's positively changing the lives of grandmothers as well. Yeah, one of our most recent publication actually took a random sample of grandmothers who are working on Friendship Bench and compared them with a similar random sample of grandmothers with uh, similar sociodemographic characteristics. And we found that the grandmothers who work on Friendship Bench were a lot more resilient. They had lower rates of common mental disorders and post-traumatic stress disorder. And when we dug deeper, we actually found that this work gave the grandmothers a profound sense of purpose and a sense of, of belonging. And this is why they do this work. It's a win-win, actually. They are not only reaching out and helping people, but it's helping them too. So one thing that's been so exciting about the program is that the Friendship Bench is scaling to places all over the world. What are, what are your future dreams for this program? Like if you could wave a magic wand, what is the presence of the Friendship Bench like in communities all over the world? The vision of uh, Friendship Bench is to actually have a Friendship Bench within walking distance everywhere. Um, it sounds grandiose, very ambitious, but it's something that I am working towards because in every culture, people thrive when they connect with each other. And the friendship bench is not just an intervention that addresses mental health issues. It's really an intervention that connects people. And I think that's where the real power of this comes from. And when you connect people, particularly using grandmothers or the elderly, you have this profound sense of belonging and it creates a sense of purpose, particularly for, for the grandmothers. And, the, and, and you know, um, so, so I think that's, that's what I would like to see, you know, in the next coming years. And, and fortunately, we are, you know, we are gaining traction. Uh, and I, I just want to make it possible for every person out there who needs to connect, who feels they need to talk to be able to talk to someone who is empathic, someone who's able to respect them and to understand them. Hey, thanks for listening. Join me next week when we hear from Quinn Lewis, a college student who's mourning the tragic death of her younger sister Dixie and the future relationship she had envisioned for them.
we would always bring up how different we were from each other. We're such different people. Um, and I felt in the last few years that was changing, and it felt like the future felt intertwined, is how I would put it. It felt like we were going somewhere together. A Slight Change of Plans is created, written, and executive produced by me, Maya Shunker. The Slight Change family includes Tyler Green, our senior producer, Jen Guerra, our senior editor, Ben Tolliday, our sound engineer, Emily Rostek, our producer, and Mia LaBelle, our executive producer. Luis Guerra wrote our theme song, and Ginger Smith helped arrange the vocals. A Slight Change of Plans is a production of Pushkin Industries, so big thanks to everyone there, including Malcolm Gladwell, Jacob Weisberg, Lital Malad, and Heather Fain. And of course, a very special thanks to Jimmy Lee. You can follow A Slight Change of Plans on Instagram at Dr. Maya Shunker. See you next week. Is there any chance for grandfathers? When we first started, we did involve some grandfathers. The challenge with grandfathers is they just don't have the same ability as grandmothers when it comes to creating space and letting people tell their stories. Grandfathers tend to be prescriptive. They tend to tell you what you need to do. You go and talk to this person and go and do this. You know. So there's some mansplaining going on. Yes, quite a lot of it. <laughs> the Hargan women seem to have it all. From the outside looking in, we were blessed. My mom was amazing. But as detectives would soon learn, there was a lot going on inside the Hargan household. Ashley and I have been calling my mom and the house and Helen. Okay. No one's answering. 63-year-old Pamela Hargan gunned down in her own home. Her youngest daughter, Helen, lay dead upstairs. Patrol, when they arrived, assumed or thought that there might have been a murder-suicide. But for the detectives on the scene... There were things about the scene itself that were concerning to us on day one. Who would want to kill their mother and their little sister? There is no boogeyman here. It is exactly who we think it is. I'm Peter Vance Sat from 48 Hours. This is Blood is Thicker, the Hargan Family Killings. Listen to Blood is Thicker, the Hargan Family Killings, wherever you get your podcasts.